either you were handed a Bible as a kid and told, here you go, kid, here's the entire Bible. It's all the inspired words given by God. You need to read it and completely base your life on it and obey it. Or maybe, you know, later on in life, you became interested in who Jesus was. And so some well-meaning good person gave you a Bible. Well, that's awesome, but what do you do with it? How do we understand it? How do we use it? Welcome to Together for Salem. Welcome to the studio, AKA my basement. We're glad you're here. Glad you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, the podcast. I'm here to say a quick hello, a greeting, if you will. And I'm gonna pass it off to our friend, John. He's gonna talk about part two of our Why the Bible series, how to use your Bible. There is gonna be a stream of information coming your way. So we made a downloadable bookmark for you to print out and stick in your Bible. That kind of summarizes a lot of the stuff John talks about here. It might be useful for you, but enjoy this. I'm gonna come back on the other side with a quick goodbye and a few announcements, and we'll see you afterwards. So this is one of the first Bibles I ever owned. In fact, it has original artwork by me in it. Check this out. And at some point, my parents gave me this Bible. I don't know how old I was. I was not very old. But I'm so glad they did give it to me because it, it started a, a love and a foundation for the story in here. But check out what is in this book that was given to a kid who could barely even write his own name properly. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And the refuse came out. <laughs> that was handed to like a five-year-old. And, you know, there's also some confusing things in here. Like, part of this book says that if children disobey their parents, they should be killed. But then later, there's a story about a son who tells his dad, hey, dad, you won't die, so give me my money now, and then goes and wastes his money, but the dad loves him and forgives him for it. It's so like, which is it? It can be confusing, right? And I know many of us are experiencing or have experienced kind of the, the same thing. Either you were handed a Bible as a kid and told, here you go, kid, here's the entire Bible. It's all the inspired words given by God. You need to read it and completely base your life on it and obey it. Or maybe, you know, later on in life, you became interested in who Jesus was. And so some well-meaning good person gave you a Bible. Well, that's awesome, but what do you do with it? Like, do you, do you read it at a book like most other books? You, you just start at the beginning. I mean, if you do that, there's some interesting stories, but you could kind of get bogged down like pretty early on in some pretty in, um, intricate details. And if you read it like that, it's going to take you a long time to get to that Jesus person that you were interested in in the first place. 
So do you use it like a lot of people say, uh, it's the basic instructions before leaving earth. Like basically it's, it's our rule book on, on how to live. Like if it's in the Bible, then you obey it and you do it. Well, that could create some pretty sticky situations, couldn't it? Like, you know, you're going to go to jail if you stone your disobedient son. So then do we use it like a magic eight ball and we, we just open it up and we pick random verses and then we try to apply that to our life somehow, right? So what do we do with the Bible? How do we, how do we understand it? How do we use it? Now, the thing that we're going to see today is when we understand how to use the biblical writings, we can understand our role in the kingdom of God. So it's kind of important that we learn how to use the biblical writings. And again, I, we've only got about 20, 30 minutes to talk about this huge subject. And so I'm going to be moving fast. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can email us, email us at info at yourcrosscreek.com. And we would love to have a conversation with you about maybe your thoughts or some questions you have. So to understand how to use the biblical writings, I think it's first important that we talk about how not to use them. First of all, this is the Bible I use now. The Bible is, the biblical writings are not a rule book. Maybe you've heard it. People say, well, it says here that you need to... Uh, not have long hair as a man because God doesn't like that and so you need to obey it. Well, no, biblical writings are not to be used as a rule book. It's also not a scientific textbook. It wasn't written to tell us every little detail about the universe and how God created everything and how it all works. That wasn't the point of these writings. It's also not a magical holy book where you use randomly selected verses that you can now have them mean whatever you want them to mean for you so that you can feel good now and you just like grab a verse and be like, oh, that's my life verse. But you have no idea like what it's actually about. So the deal is the biblical writings are first and foremost a story, a true story. In fact, the true story. The biblical writings tell the story of God bringing his kingdom to earth to love and redeem his children. The thing is, though, a story is a little bit more difficult to use in our lives than, say, like the, an owner's manual of a car, right? It'd be nice if we just had a list of things that we needed to do and then we're good to go. But a story, it's got a lot of nuance to it, doesn't it? And so if a story, this true, if it's a story in a, it's a true story. How do we use it? How do we apply it to our lives? The best analogy that I've actually found is by a scholar named N.T. Wright. And he kind of describes how to use the biblical writings this way. He tells a story of, imagine we discovered a, uh, an unknown play by William Shakespeare. Not that one, this one. Uh, and it's a five-act play. Now, the problem is that the first four acts are completely finished, and we, we have those, but the fifth act, he never actually got around to finishing. It started, but it's, it's unfinished. But it's decided by all the Shakespearean experts that this play is so amazing, and like it's, it's Shakespeare's perfect play, that, and the characters are, are just so rich in it, and the plot is so intriguing, and the crescendo of the plot in Act 4 is just so exhilarating that everyone agrees this play needs to be produced. People need to see this play acted out. Well, what do we do about 
finishing the fifth act. It's decided that it wouldn't be right just to just to write a fifth act, have one person sit down and write a fifth act and, and kind of fix that act in stone, saying it's, it's Shakespeare's play, because that would force Shakespeare to say things he didn't actually say. It would force the play into a mold it was never really meant to be forced into. So instead, what they do is, what if they give the, uh, the first four acts are given to highly trained, sensitive, experienced Shakespearean actors who immerse themselves in the world of this play, in the culture of it, in the language of it, in the experiences of the characters and, and the characteristics of the earlier acts. And then, instead of just writing a script for it, they themselves would produce the rest of the fifth act. They would allow the earlier acts and the characters in it and, and the culture of it to have authority over and to inform them as they acted out the rest of the play. So to do this play justice, the actors would, would need to enter into the story, into the plot of this play themselves. And while being consistent with the characterizations of the earlier acts, they would still need to be innovative and creative with how the rest of the play, the rest of the fifth act, actually played out. See, it's the same with the biblical writings. The biblical writings are the story of God, how he loved his people, how he interacted with them, how he came and died to redeem them, and how the, that event changed the lives of the first Jesus followers. And the story's not complete yet. We are actually now a part of it. And the only thing I would add to this analogy is that now each actor, each Jesus follower, also has the Holy Spirit of God living in them, guiding them to, to teach them what is in line with the previous plot and what is not. See, the biblical writings show us who God is, what his love is really like, and what it looked like to follow him in the first century. And now the biblical writings guide new actors the modern Jesus followers, how to play our part in the kingdom of God. The biblical writings inform Jesus followers on how to play their part in the kingdom of God. So I like that analogy and I think it, I think it fits, but how do we use these writings to inform our parts of the play? Well, first we need to understand that all of the biblical writings are equally inspired, but they are not equally applicable. Like, wouldn't it be strange if the actors of this Shakespearean play simply played the fifth act by repeating the, the same lines and the same plots and the same actions of the, of the first four acts? That wouldn't be a very good play, would it? It'd be very clunky and it wouldn't really fit with the story. See, those first acts are fully part of the play. They were written by the original author. They were inspired by the original author, but they aren't the fifth act, are they? See, to allow the biblical writings to inform our lives, we need to discover what they meant when they were written, a word we call exegesis, and how that applies to our, our context, which we call hermeneutics. So that's basically what we try to do in these episodes. We say, okay, so what did this passage mean when it was written? And in light of that, in, and in light of our position in the story, how can that inform our lives today? That might sound a little difficult, a little, a little complicated maybe. How do we best understand the plot in order to play our new parts, really is the question we're asking. And so I think we, there's some useful practices we can use. 
There's three practices that allow us to effectively use the biblical writings to inform our roles in the kingdom of God. The first one is find an accurate translation that works for you. Like we said in the last episode, the original script, the original biblical writings were written in three languages most of us will never learn. Ancient Hebrew, ancient Aramaic, and ancient Greek. Like you remember trying to understand, read and understand Shakespeare in high school with the, the old English? Well, now just imagine trying to learn it while it's written in ancient Greek. So <laughs> that's why we have different translations. But we have so many different translations. In fact, there's more than 450 different translations just in English. So how do we know which one to choose? Well, first, I got to tell you, people get really weird about biblical translations. Like they judge each other on the translation they use and be like, well, you're not as good of a Christian because you use the nearly inspired version, the NIV, or stuff like that. Listen, the best translation is the one you'll use basically. So start with that. You're not going to go wrong. There's no like uh, heresy in any of these translations. The best translation is the one you'll use. Now second, some good pointers is the later the translation has been made, usually the more accurate it's going to be to the original text due to the fact that we have found more recent discoveries of manuscripts. See, a, there's quite a few more original or close to the original, like we talked about last episode, manuscripts discovered since 1611 when the King James Version was translated. And so now we have a better idea of what the original writings said. So a later translation is usually more accurate. Now third, you got to think about, and I know we're getting into the weeds here, but it's important. There's really two main types of translations to choose from. You can have a word-for-word -word translation or a thought-for-thought thought translation. They're both, they both have strengths and weaknesses. A word-for-word -word translation is strong because you have the accurate words. You kind of have the, the way the original writer phrased it. But the weakness of that is it's kind of clunky because you're translating from a different way of writing, speaking, and, and thinking, right? Like trying to translate Spanish straight into English doesn't always make sense. And so with that, when you do word for word, the translators still need to make some choices on what words mean, right? They say, oh, the writer said this Greek word. Well, this Greek word, if we just translate it, could have a few different meanings. And so we need to choose which one the author meant to actually write. Now, thought for thought translations, their strength is that they're usually very understandable in our language. They don't just take the words and kind of throw them on the page. They, they take, the, what did the author originally mean when he said these things and then put them into how we would say them now, like if the author was writing it now. Now, the language is not precise, the exact words, but the main point comes through probably a little bit clearer. The weakness is you have to, to do a thought for thought. You have to rely on the translator's choices on what the meaning the author intended. But if you think about it, accurate wording can hide the true meaning because if it's, if it's clunky and it's not how we speak, it kind of changes the meaning in our minds. And a lot of issues can come from that. And the biblical writings weren't written to be ambiguous. So why would we let the difficulty of language veil the meaning for us? And so you can probably tell what my, my personal choice is. Both choices are fine and great. But that's why I use the New Living, the NLT translation, because it's a thought for thought that kind of makes it a little bit more clear. That's why I teach through that on these episodes, if you were wondering. Now, fourth, the best route when talking about translations is to use a variety. Use a word for word. Use a thought for thought. For me personally, 
For my word for word, I use the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which is actually one of my first Bibles. And then I'll use the NIV or the NLT for the thought for thought to kind of put them together. Now, the beauty of living in 2021 or 22, whenever you're watching this, is that technology can put like different translations side by side and you can read them together. So that you could go to BibleGateway.com or you could get the, the Bible app and have the different translations right at your fingers. It's pretty cool. And so you might be thinking, okay, I well, shoot, if you made it through that, you're doing great. But you might be thinking, okay, cool. I'm reading it. I found a translation I like, and maybe I'm using other translations, but uh, I still don't really know what it means. Like, how do I know what they're actually talking about? So a second, our second practice is to utilize commentaries. Brilliant people, people smarter than you or me, well, at least smarter than me, brilliant people have spent their entire lives immersed in the original languages, in the original cultures, that the biblical that produced the biblical writings it would be crazy to read these writings and not use their research to really understand why the person who wrote it wrote it it would be like see using commentaries is like the actors of that shakespearean play consulting shakespearean experts to better inform their roles and so with that a good study bible is incredibly helpful i know we can't all invest in libraries of commentaries. So a good study Bible is super helpful, preferably one written by a group of people working together and not just one dude who thinks this verse means that. It's, and so I actually, we have a link in the show notes to my favorite study Bible. Now, if you really want to dig deep, then find some commentaries, some biblical commentaries that take the, the passage or the book of the Bible and tell you, here's what that really means. And here's different ideas. And then third, the best practice when learning and reading and studying the biblical writings is to ask questions. Two main questions. What did this mean? And what does this mean for me now? But under what did this mean? This is where we have to start to know what it meant when it was written. What did this mean to those who first heard it? And so we have to ask more questions. What is the literary genre? To whom was this written? Why was it written? What is the literary context? Meaning like, does the surrounding context of this passage that I'm reading inform the passage I'm reading? And so what is the genre? Meaning like, what type of writing is it? The, the biblical writings come into a few genres. History, poetry, wisdom, letters, autobiographies, and then some that we're not so familiar with in our culture, prophecy and apocalyptic literature. See, the thing is, you, we should read a teaching from Jesus differently than we would a poem by, say, King David. Or what we call the epistles, right? The letters written by Paul and Peter and John. When you get a letter, you don't just like read from a friend. You don't just read one random sentence out of context of the letter and then post it to Facebook, right? No, you read the whole thing to get the context of the letter, what, what the sender of the letter is trying to get across to you. And you also don't take that letter and, and try to quote it to somebody who's, who's not read it. And you don't basically tell them to do what this letter says, even though the letter wasn't written to them. And when you read a biography, you don't just jump around to different chapters and sentences in the book, right? You, you read it like a story. 
The same with the biography, biographical accounts of Jesus' life that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't just jump around, read the story to get to know what the author is trying to say. Let me ask, what is the historical context? Or, or to whom was this written and why was it written? See, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant writings that we talked about last episode, were written to Jews, to the Jewish people describing their history. And so when we read that, we can focus on the fact that they are describing something. In fact, one of the heroes, heroes of the Old Testament writings is David, right? King David, David and Goliath. Well, it talks about, it says that he had a few wives. Now, people say that like, oh my gosh, God's saying, if this is God's word, and David, man after God's own heart, was a polygamist, is God saying that polygamy is okay? No, guys, calm down. <laughs> it's basically a history describing the facts of the time, the fact that David actually had multiple wives. It's not telling people to have multiple wives. It's just describing the facts of history. And now you take the, the Gospels, right? The accounts of Jesus' life written by the disciples. Those were written to inform people of what God had done, of this huge event of Jesus dying and rising again. And so they focus on informing. And so when you read those, focus on informing. What is the kingdom of God like? What is this offer of new life? What was that all about? And the epistles, like we said, the letters written by Paul, Peter, John, James, they were written to first century Jesus followers, instructing them how to live out this new life that Jesus brought that we see in the Gospels. So when you read those, you focus on instruction. They are not complete theological treatises or summaries of the entire theology of the author. These letters were written to specific groups of Jesus followers in a specific culture, in a specific city, at a specific time, for specific reasons. Now, once we have a good grasp on what it meant, on what that passage we're studying or reading meant, then we can ask, only then can we really ask, what does this mean for my life? And to do that, we can ask three other questions. What does this say about God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit? What does this say about humanity in general? And then what do I need to do in light of every other question I've asked? See, we need to understand all of that in order to be able to accurately let the biblical writings inform our role in the story. So I know that seems like a lot, right? And you might want to rewind or, or look at the show notes and see the, the transcript. But let's see, let's see how this works in action of, of really look understanding the biblical writings. Let's see how this works in action. Check out this verse. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Well, what did this mean? Well, the study Bible that I have a link to answers the first three of our questions right away. What genre is this? Well, it's the book of Ephesians, meaning it's a letter written by Paul. So we know right off the top that he is explaining what it means to be a Jesus follower in the first century. So to whom was it written? Jesus followers in the city of Ephesus, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire around 60 AD. So we know it was written only to Jesus followers. In fact, the entire uh, epistles of the New Testament were only written to Jesus followers. They're not telling non-Jesus followers what to do at all. 
and they're written in a specific Roman cultural context. You know what else we could learn is that why was this written? Why was the book or the letter of Ephesians written? Because Paul had started a few churches in that area, and he felt like a, a spiritual father to them. And most of the Ephesians were, were Gentiles who weren't Jews coming out of a Greco-Roman culture. And they were new to this whole following Jesus thing, so they weren't exactly sure what it meant to live like a Jesus follower. And so he's instructing them what it means to be a Jesus follower. Paul wanted to make sure that they understood what God had given them and what it was like to live in response to that gift. So what did our troubling sentence mean then? Well, the literary context that we see by looking at the entire letter. Earlier it says that Jesus' followers are God's children, and he has shown his children how to love each other through the example of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the section we're talking about here is talking about imitating God because they are his children, that they need to live a life of love following the example of Jesus. And to do so, they need to allow the Holy Spirit to fill them, to guide them. So with that in mind, then, Paul moves to how all of that plays out in relationships. And so he starts this section with something that often gets skipped. He starts with his main point for this section, for all Jesus-following relationships. He says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so he's saying, what does this look like for marriage relationships? And he says, wives, that means to submit to your husbands. And later he says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Meaning, love your wife as Christ loved her the entire church, submitting your life for her good, not submitting your life to whatever the husband wants for himself. And so from that, from the commentary, we see that the offensive part of this letter for the Roman culture was not the wife part, but the husband part. Because of, of the role the husband and the father took in the Roman family, it was an extremely patriarchal society. The father's husband's word was law and, and everyone else was his property. And so it's actually offensive that Paul says for the husband to submit his life for the wife and that he didn't tell wives to obey their husbands, but only submit to them. So with all of that, now we can ask, what does this mean for us today? Well, what does this say about God, Jesus, and or the Holy Spirit? Paul said, Jesus submitted himself, and now we can allow the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can have the same attitude and allow Jesus to love others through us. What does this say about humanity? Well, it says what we all know, that we want to rule over others. We want others to submit to us, but that, and that we want to live for what we want. So what do we do in light of all that we've discovered here? Well, despite the examples around us, a Jesus-following marriage should look like a submission competition as we imitate Jesus' love to each other. Okay, great. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? How you, how you go through those questions and stuff, but there's still some difficult and hard to understand or accept things in these biblical writings, like what it says, what some of the writers said about gender roles or homosexuality or all the violence in the Old Testament writings. What do we do with that? It can be difficult to understand some things in here because, honestly, it wasn't written to us. It was written to people who lived thousands of years ago. But we can still 
navigate this. Remember, we can ask questions. So in these difficult passages, we first ask, is the author saying what we think they're saying? Is, are they really saying what this one sentence makes it, think, makes it seem like they're saying? Using those questions we just went through can be very, very helpful. Also, good commentaries will give an overview of all the major viewpoints for debated passages. It won't just say, well, this is what it means. No, it'll give you what all the scholars think it means, the main ideas. Second, is this issue a major issue or a minor issue in the scheme of God's story? If it's a major issue, we, we focus on it and try to figure it out. If it's just a minor thing, then don't worry too much about it. Major on the majors and minor on the minors. Example. Is what Paul means or doesn't mean about gender roles or homosexuality or even hairstyles change the fact that Jesus said he was God and then proved it by dying and rising from the dead. See, the stuff that might be uncomfortable or hard to understand doesn't change the fact that Jesus died for everyone and that trusting him frees us to play our part in his grand story of redemption, does it? See, that's the major. The other stuff are the minors. If the biblical writers didn't make huge issues out of it, maybe we shouldn't either. And instead, maybe we should be graceful to each other and trust that the Holy Spirit is working in and through and on all of us in our own timing and way. So use the script. Use the script to inform your role. Trust the Holy Spirit and then play your part. See, we are all invited to play a leading role in the story of the kingdom of God. We are here as Jesus followers to continue the story of, of God, the story that God is inviting all of humanity to participate in. But we aren't just asked to, to figure it out and just do whatever feels best. We have the biblical writings to inform us of what our roles can look like, to help shape our part of the story. We can trust that they are accurate. And if we use them properly, we can use them to guide us, to guide us in discovering our role in the kingdom of God. Because when we discover how to play our role in the kingdom of God, we discover the life Jesus has invited us to. We didn't warn you, right? Uh, we hope you find that information useful, helpful. You may not remember it all, which is completely understandable. So please check out the bookmark download principle that is in the show notes or description. It might be useful for you the next time you sit down with your Bible and want to remember those questions or things to think about uh, that John just talked about. Maybe that prompted questions. Maybe you're like, Monica, I don't have a Bible. Or you're like, I really can use some coffee. Can I get a $5 Starbucks gift card? Yes, you can. You can do that using our welcome form. It's a pretty simple form. If you don't like using forms, I don't blame you. You can just email us and say hello and we'll start a conversation. None of this stuff is high pressure. None of it has strings attached. It's mostly just a way for you to interact with us through the screen or through your speakers or earbuds and just let us know that you're a real person and we can remind you that we're real people living in Salem, Oregon, and we'd love to connect with you. Speaking of Salem, Oregon, we do have in-person gatherings twice a month, and we'd love to get that information to you about where we will be and when we'll be gathering. So it's on the screen here. It's also in the description. And if you follow us on social media, that's actually really, really smart. Normally I wouldn't say get on social media, all the time, but we do post information about gatherings, locations, times, if it's a potluck, if we're providing dinner, whatever's happening. So if you're not on social media, you can use that 
as a good resource, or you can just check out the website because that's updated all the time too. All right. Uh, the last thing is we have giveaways happening and those will be happening on social media. Mina's Cafe is our giveaway this week. So the winner is right here. Congratulations on winning Mina's Cafe $25 gift card. And you might want some coffee. As I mentioned earlier, we're giving away $25 to Espresso Road, which could come in handy with school starting this week. All right, enjoy your connect groups. Here come some questions and we'll see you next week for some more. Yeah. <laughs> what happened there?